Hey there, and welcome to the Homeschool Movement Podcast. We're a show that aims to motivate, inspire, and encourage people who are educating their children on the home front. My name is Rachel Carriano, and I invite you to join us each week as we discuss practical ways to effectively teach our children and where you can listen in on various conversations that will help you become the best homeschool parent that you can be. On our fourth episode of the Homeschool Movement Podcast, I sit down and chat with Julie Bogart. Julie is the popular voice of common sense and compassion for home educators. Her online coaching community, the Homeschool Alliance, her podcast, and her YouTube channel are lifelines for tens of thousands of weary homeschoolers all over the world. Julie's the creator of the award-winning innovative online writing program called Brave Writer and the fast-growing weekly habit called Poetry Tea Time. She home-educated her five children, who are now globe-trotting adults, and today Julie lives in Cincinnati, Ohio, and can be found sipping a cup of tea, planning her next visit to one of her lifelong learning kids. Today, we talk about Julie's new book, The Brave Learner. We discuss how we don't have to have anxiety about our kids' use of technology, and how we can incorporate their interests in games like Fortnite and Roblox into the math and science curriculum. You can also listen to us chat about the concept of anything can teach everything, how to, not, how to motivate the unmotivated learner, and just what is the right amount of time for teaching a subject daily. I know this interview helped me grow tremendously in my homeschooling skills, and I hope it does for you as well. Julie, thank you so much for sitting down and chatting with me. 100%. Happy to be here. Yeah, and I was I was kind of talking to you a little bit before, but just all of your stuff that you've created and your experience with your own kids have helped me so much. I know uh, thousands of other people as well, but just at times when I felt like I wanted to throw the towel in or maybe this homeschool thing isn't sustainable. Um, I know listening to one of the episodes of your podcast or reading something that you have written has really just brought a sense of peace and just a chill outness. I just made up that word. Uh, <laughs> so for people that are listening that may have never heard of uh, Brave Rider, go ahead and tell us a little bit about what that is. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah. So I homeschooled my own kids, five of them for 17 years. They're all grownups now. And during that time, I became aware that a lot of people felt uncomfortable teaching writing. I worked as a professional writer, freelance writer, magazine editor, ghost writer, all kinds of writing activities, and realized that the work I did with my own kids, drawing from my professional experience, seemed to make more of a difference in their growth as writers than what I was seeing happen with my friends' children when they used traditional writing programs. In fact, uh, one of the things I remember very distinctly is talking with a friend who was asking for help teaching her kids. And when I looked at her writing program, and I read the sample paragraph for the assignment, I was sort of shocked at that paragraph. I asked my friend, the mom, did you like reading that paragraph? She said, what do you mean? I said, well, did you like it? Did you want there to be a second paragraph because it was so good? Yeah. She goes, uh, no. I said, well, then why are you using that program to teach writing? Like, why would we want our kids to imitate samples that aren't even compelling to read. And it was right at that moment that I realized that maybe most people didn't grow up with access 
to professional writing instruction. Mm. Uh, my mother is a professional writer. She just wrote her final book, which was like number 72 or something. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so I had a completely different feeling about what it looked like to grow as a writer. So 19 years ago, I launched Brave Writer, uh, January year 2000. And its goal was to help parents become effective writing coaches and allies to their kids. So that's the genesis of Brave Writer. And since then, we've created online classes, hundreds of pieces of curriculum, and a whole community around growing a lifestyle and practice that supports writing growth in children. Uh, so that's how Brave Writer got going. Yeah. And, and tell us about Homeschool Alliance as well, because that's kind of partnered with that. Is that correct? Yes. So the Homeschool Alliance then is a coaching community that supports the practice of educating your children at home. And that really did grow because of what I learned watching other homeschoolers homeschool. All these years of working with parents around writing and even homeschooling my own kids and studying philosophies of learning and all that stuff you do when you're a homeschooler suddenly sort of gelled together and I could see a picture of what the struggles were that the average homeschool mom faces. And then I had just a slew of ideas for how to address those. So we set up this coaching community, what we call the Homeschool Alliance. Uh, our tagline is like grad school for homeschool, because <laughs> my goal was to create a relationship with the research and studies that help support the practices of education, parenting, and self-care. Okay. So that a homeschool parent could have sort of a, an intersection of all three of those experiences at any given time. Mm -hmm. We study together and we uh, have a discussion board. I lead a webinar every month that helps put those practices into an implemented lifestyle for parents. Mm -hmm. And are there any like physical meetups or are these people all over the world or how does that work? They are all over the world, literally. They're, it's a global community. We do have meetups occasionally, like if I speak in a city, mm -hmm. a lot of times we will set up a, a dinner or something beforehand for any Alliance members. We do have a conference this summer happening in Cincinnati that okay. Brave Rider is hosting. And a whole bunch of Homeschool Alliance members are coming to that. We will uh, make it possible for them to sit together, meet each other, that kind of thing. But we are also a much bigger community than the Alliance. There are literally tens of thousands of families that are involved in Brave Rider, whether they're on our Facebook page or Instagram group or meeting each other in local cities because they've found each other. So there are lots of ways to plug into Brave Rider. Not all of them cost money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so a little background about myself. I actually taught English and language arts in middle school, uh, inner city Detroit. So that was a wow. lot of, that was a lot of fun, but it's kind of the same thing. You know, I had these kids that maybe were reading on third, fourth grade levels, writing the same way. And they're, you know, the, this five paragraph writing structure, right? It's ridiculous, right? So who is writing this curriculum for these kids? Do you know, or where's their inspiration? For the schooled kids, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think so much of education today is around these scope and sequence and outcome-based standards. Mm -hmm. So everything that's getting written is written with those goals in mind. Mm -hmm. uh, we like to say in Brave Rider that we're about growth, not grades. Mm -hmm. But the school system is about grades. It's about educational milestones. It's about markers that indicate that a certain amount of information has gotten done 
gotten through. And so I, yeah, I mean, I don't spend a lot of time looking at the sources for those things, but what I do know, um, my kid's dad wrote for a textbook company for a number of years. Yes. He's also a literature and composition professor at two of our local universities here and now, or or has been, now he teaches at a high school, uh, kind of similar to the program you're talking about in Detroit with um, some inner city students. But anyway, point is when he worked on textbooks, it was a revelation to me. They literally hire writers who go and look online and Wikipedia and whatever books are in their library and generate the narrative that goes in a textbook. When they're teaching how to teach writing, they're following the sort of guidelines and stipulations of the state standards, and they're crafting uh, the answer to whatever the need is. So the way I share it in conferences is like this. An educator who isn't necessarily a published writer is conscripted to write uh, a lesson for a kind of writing. So what they do is they'll analyze a descriptive paragraph. Mm-hmm. They'll deconstruct it for its elements. They usually do a good job of that, actually. Then to help students reproduce that paragraph, they will write this list of criteria as the assignment. So it might say, you need a topic sentence. Make sure you appeal to the five senses. Include sentence variety. Add some key words that repeat. Close with a clincher. Make sure there are three points. There are always this kind of criteria. When a student then encounters this assignment to write a descriptive paragraph about a copper penny, Mm -hmm. they immediately move away from the penny and start thinking about how to satisfy all the criteria. Mm -hmm. They're thinking about sentence structure or organization or how to make sure they include some sensory detail for each of the five senses. Usually they're not holding a copper penny in their hands. They're not investigating it. They're not allowing themselves the freedom to make wild comparisons or to lick the penny or to throw it against a wall and see what noise it makes. So what we end up with then is this very rigid writing. A lot of times writing that gets A's that no one would want to read. You know, I, I share this one example of what I call the I love spaghetti paragraph. So a child might write something like, I love spaghetti. It has yellow noodles and red sauce. It tastes really good. My family eats it on Tuesday nights. That's why I love spaghetti. If you read that, it meets the criteria for a classic paragraph. It has three points. It appeals to flavor, visual, habit of family. It has an opening line and a closing line. But literally the most unmemorable paragraph about spaghetti (laughs) you will ever read, right? right. And yet it might get an A. Yeah. So when I teach writing, we start from a different place. We start from connection to the topic. If we were to write the I love spaghetti paragraph in my family, we would have started out with remembering experiences from our Tuesday night spaghetti nights. Mm. And in our family, that included taking a noodle and putting one end in your mouth, putting the other end in the other person's mouth and having a race to the middle. So I would have said to my kids, let's start with that. You know, I've got a noodle in my mouth. My brother has one in his, his, there's red sauce all over it. My dad says, one, two, three, go. And we race to the middle. Right. You know, we wouldn't start with, I love spaghetti, the punchline. Mm-hmm. We would invite you in and confuse you and throw you off course and make you question your relationship to spaghetti yeah. so that we arouse your curiosity and create space for all that detail to be rich and interesting. 
Yeah. And I think just in, in, in your book and in your podcast, when you're talking about this, you have such a gift for kind of, you know, fanning that flame of creativity and, and things that we all aspire to in homeschooling. And I think that's fantastic. So you, like I said, you just did come out with a book, right? And what's yes. the name of it? The Brave Learner, Finding Everyday Magic in Homeschool Learning and Life. There you go. And I heard, I think I heard you say that you wanted it to appeal to homeschoolers and non-homeschoolers alike. Is that correct? That's true. In fact, when I first pitched the book, I pitched it as a general education book to my publisher. Okay. They asked me to frame it through the homeschool experience since that was the primary source material. Mm-hmm. But my ambition then was to write a book about education sourced in the insights we've all gleaned from about 40 or 50 years of homeschooling as a corporate offstage uh, project that all these mothers have been engaged in and some fathers. Mm-hmm. And to bring those insights about what we learned back into the discussion and conversation about education. Yeah. So there are absolutely things in this book that appeal just to a parent who cares about their child's learning experience. Yeah. There are ideas you can do after school, on the weekends, ways to engage school topics right. and help tie them to a child's interest to boost the interest in learning. Yeah. But of course, the primary audience is absolutely homeschoolers. Right. And I think so much, even if you're not, if anyone out there is listening, that's not homeschooling and has their kids in school, there's still that chunk of time for homework, right? At the end of each day, even though they've been in school for however many hours or or whatever. So I think, yeah, I think I've read through it. I'm going through it again. So it's so much I want to talk about in the book. Oh, good. One of the biggest things, uh, yeah, I have my list right here. One of the biggest things um, that I thought was fantastic is you said, you say that Anything can teach everything. Can you go ahead and expand on that for us? Absolutely. So the example I use in the book is of a bathtub stopper, Mm -hmm. a completely sort of wallpaper item in your home. You never think about the bathtub stopper. And yet if we pause and actually consider it, it took sophisticated application of engineering skill, machining, Harvesting whatever materials we use to create that stopper. Design, you know, it's not just all stoppers look the same. Mm -hmm. There are all kinds of people who literally have masters and PhDs in product design that get applied to something as mundane as a bathroom stopper. There is literature written around that stopper, why it is state of the art, why it fits in with the story of bathroom stoppers from the last 200 years and why there's been this evolution in the quality of the product. Uh, There is testing and research and development involved where we find out how to improve it. There is marketing that has to be done in order to sell it. The reason I draw that out in so much detail is this. We tend to think of entertainment and our daily lives as separate from education. And yet it is the education we're going through that makes it possible for us to participate in the things we enjoy and in all of the things we use and the careers we eventually will pursue. Mm -hmm. So if we look at a child's life, for instance, and we look at something like that hugely popular online game right now called Fortnite, (laughs) Fortnite literally can help you launch a child's interest into math history, narrative, writing, uh, sociology, psychology, the narrative of gaming. How is gaming so powerful in a child's life? Wouldn't it be interesting to help a child see the levers, you know, get behind the curtain 
and understand why Fortnite is popular, why it draws them to keep playing, what the mathematical action is in the programming. It doesn't necessarily mean that your kids will never do another workbook sheet. I'm not talking about magic. I'm talking about provoking a conversation between the things we care about and how they came to be, and then using that as leverage to work through those school subjects. What I found with my own kids, for instance, I have a son who was a massive gamer, and in seventh grade, I went to teach him how to calculate percents. Mm-hmm. And we sat down and because of his long experience in Halo, the you know, yeah. video game, he had already created his own system for calculating percent because he needed to know how much life he would have left after certain numbers of hits, after certain risks he took. And so here I was showing him this method that I knew as the traditional school method, but he had already in his own mind explored the properties of percents because it had real world value to him. Yeah. Well, it was a short step then to decimals and fractions because those are all expressing the same idea. So then we could even look at, well, if you have this much percent life left, how much is that if we measure it by fractions? Yeah. What does it look like in decimals? And it created this rich sort of opportunity to care. That didn't exist if we were just doing it as a rote workbook. So that's a small example, but it literally plays out through all the school subjects. So anything your child is into, we can find those correspondences and start to help those interconnections happen. Yeah. And that, when I read that myself, I know it really hit home for me because I don't know what it is about like technology and playing games like, oh, they're not learning, the brain's being fried, you know, uh, this is right. a time just for me to get a break, right? And you can do that. But we've kind of just in the past week in, in, in reading your book, uh, so my boys are really into Roblox. I don't know. Oh, yes. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> so we've done math, Roblox math stuff. We've done science stuff. We've done, um, we did the percentage, right? With how, Okay, if you play 10 games and you lose at this, and then we're going to figure out the fractions. And honestly, something that's um, been fruitful just in my relationship with them. I honest to God, I haven't sit down to see them play a game. It was always you play your video game while I why I go clean the kitchen or I get a rest. And the connection that we've had just sitting down and watching the watching him play the video game, they wouldn't shut up about it. They wanted to tell me on and on and on and on, you know. And it was something that I don't think I would have gotten to experience or have that connection like you said with them if I didn't just sit down and now you know I'm, I'm shifting my perspective on it and saying okay it's not all bad let's use this as a base to to learn exactly teach everything like you said right absolutely and you know the thing is if you show interest that kind of deep interest in your child's number one passion the thing that gives them the greatest pleasure mm-hmm. the number of trust points you just earned with your kids skyrocketed. Yeah. They are far more likely to be willing yeah. to try to be interested in what you want them to be interested in if you've gone first. Yes. If you've said the thing you value is valuable to me. Typically what we do is we say, "Well, you value that, I don't, so go play it alone." Yeah. And then we say, "Now, come over here and do the thing I'm interested in you learning." Mm-hmm. And your child is like, "Well, that's unfair, right? Like I have yeah. to muster interest in your thing. You didn't even care about my thing." Even if they can't articulate it, that's a little bit what's going on. So if we start actually making these deposits of shared caring 
they're much more likely to believe that you have something good in store when you do make yeah. a recommendation or invite them to stay with you and consider this idea they haven't ever seen before. Yeah. And I think it just, it's really just transforms the whole dynamic of the house instead of, oh, another day we have to homeschool. It's like, right. well, no, what can we do today? It's full of possibilities and now oh, we I have love this that. connection and you know, it doesn't have to be worksheet after worksheet and everything like that. So love um, it. Yeah. And so one of the other things, I think it ties into that, but you coined the verb, uh, big sister, the project, right? So yes. having an interest and in, it kind of goes along the same thing that you were talking about. Do you want to add anything else to, to that? Oh, sure. Yeah. So the big sistering idea really came from a comment Steven Spielberg made about his own mother, mm -hmm. how she sort of big sistered his love of taking of making films into being by participating with him, taking his interests seriously. The reason I liked the language of big sistering is that when we're in parent mode, mm -hmm. we, we sort of lose the relational connection. We get much more about protecting and ensuring and requiring an obedience and duty. When we use language like big sistering, it lightens that mode. It helps us recognize that we're maybe just a little more skillful than the child. We're not lording it over them. Uh, Maria Montessori says, follow your child, but follow your child as his leader. That's what big sistering sounds like to me. It's a person with just a little more experience who can actually help the child get where they want to go. Whereas when we're in parent mode, it's like, I'm trying to get my child to go where I want them to go. Yeah. And the weird thing is, if you start with where your child is and you show that curiosity, then when you come along and say, well, actually, here's a way to calculate percents a lot faster. Yeah. Well, they're a lot more interested, right? Because yeah. it's situated in the context of something they value. Yeah. Can you give us an example from your homeschool, your plethora of homeschool experiences where you were able to big sister? Definitely. Yeah. In fact, this one's not in the book, so I would love to share it. Sure. So my daughter, when she was in junior high, became fascinated with fashion, like high fashion, couture, Gucci, Prada, all of that stuff. And she was somewhat of a natural writer. She, from the time she was little, she loved filling up notebooks and doing that kind of thing. But it was interesting to watch her pivot and get interested in fashion and fashion blogs, fashion writing, which if you're thinking about traditional school subjects, doesn't really sound substantial. You think to yourself, well, she should be writing about Jane Austen. Yeah. Or she should be writing about medi medieval history. But because she was my fifth child and I had learned a lot by then, I knew that you just jump in with both feet. So a couple things happened. One was uh, we had a college student friend of ours, my husband's and mine, who loved fashion. So we invited her over to our house, introduced my daughter to her, and they started going thrift store shopping once a month together. So I didn't even take her. I just yeah. coordinated this relationship with someone who would be better at it than me yeah. and who also gave her like this sense of importance. She's 12 going out with this 20-year-old shopping for fun clothes. Yeah. Uh, Katrin took over her brother's cookie business so that she could earn just enough money to buy those clothes on her own. So that happened, you know, for years actually. During that time, we ended up subscribing to five different fashion magazines. <laughs> Not cheap, by the yeah. way. Yeah. These are print, huge, four-color magazines like W and L and Vogue. And they 
they were more expensive than buying like a math program. But I just, <laughs> you know, yeah. but I saw it as part of our investment in her education. Mm -hmm. From those magazines, she started wanting to write about fashion, but the words are challenging. There are so many words, Gucci, couture. Uh, I mean, just words I don't even, ruching. I don't even know how to spell that. And so she started making spelling lists for herself and doing copy work and dictation from fashion magazines. Wow. That became okay. the source. By the time she was a freshman in high school, she had looked at so many blogs, so many magazines, thrifted for years. She decided to launch her own fashion blog. Wow. And so every single day for a year, she wore a completely unique outfit. So every day, sometimes elements repeated, but they were always in new combinations. Mm. We would take photographs on our front step and I did all the photography for her. <laughs> then she would select and edit the photo, upload it to her blog, and she would write a blog post that included the origin of the clothes, comments about them, what fashion statement she was trying to make, and then just hilariously creative writing because she's just very funny. Yeah. And uh, I'll never forget, she was about eight months into this project. We were at the local high school. She was in a singing competition. So we were at this high school where everybody had to sing in these different classrooms. And I was sitting in there waiting for her to perform for these judges. And this girl walks in and says, oh my gosh, you're the fashion girl. You're wow. the blog I follow. That's awesome. And, and Katrin just burst out laughing and smiling. <laughs> And we then went and did the Google Analytics and she had this huge following. I mean, all these people were commenting. Yeah. And amazing. I thought, wow, like that is a story of starting with a very small interest, you know, probably started with dressing her American girl dolls, mm -hmm. to be honest. Mm -hmm. And it built all the way to having this crowning achievement. She did 365 outfits, did all the entire year, and then she was done. Is it was she a great... Is learning she journey. still doing that now? Is she in fashion? No. She is not in fashion okay. at all, but okay. she's still really into fashion. Sure. So she loves to dress, loves to shop, has every year, um, this is what she does. Some of your uh, listeners may get a kick out of this. Yeah. She always creates her own Pinterest board or her own Tumblr board and then decides what her fashion statement and theme will be for the year and shops for all her clothes based on that. So when she went off to college, her theme was, I want to be a K-pop star on her off day, like on her days off. So yeah. all of her clothes look like K-pop stars on their days off. So that's where it went. Like literally, uh -huh. she's still to this day at 22 has that bent towards fashion. But, you know, you just think of the texture and the depth of learning that happened from indulging what looks like an extracurricular. It was pretty powerful. That's amazing. And if you probably would have threw spelling tests at her that had nothing to do, then right. it would have been, it would have been lost. Right. And so, totally. and we have the, the fanning, the fame of, of creativity. And I think, have you always been this inspired? I mean, oh my gosh. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> heavens no. Bad days, Julie. <laughs> oh my God. I'll tell you the worst day of my homeschooling career. Let's okay, do that one. Let's do that yeah. One. So, um, so no, of course not. I, I tell in the book that I was mentored by someone who was fabulous. Her name was Dottie and she grew, she had a master's in, I think a master's, might've been bachelor's. Anyway, in early childhood development, plus she was an artist. So when my kids were really small and I was hanging out with her all the time, we had just this rich, very hands-on experiential, you know, uh, playful homeschool. 
But you know, when your kid hits fourth grade, there's this thing that kicks in. You're like, okay, now I got to get serious. Yeah. <laughs> so I decided to get serious after all that marvelous learning. Yeah. And I made this lesson plan. I still have them. There are these two teachers lesson plan books that you would use if you were a school teacher. I had one for Noah, one for Johanna. I had all of the subjects broken up over the days, different colored highlighters to highlight them so they would know. To make it nice and cozy, I would write them personal notes in the margins, things like, can't wait to read this paragraph with you. You're going to love the way, you know, XYZ goes on. So I tried to be cozy. I used stickers and color, but it was a lesson plan. And so every day for three months, I was a taskmaster. We were going to get through the lesson plan. We were not going to get behind. My daughter kind of enjoyed it. She's sort of a more organized type of brain. Mm -hmm. But my son, Noah, that is just not his style of learning at all. And after three months, one morning, I went up to wake him up. And he woke up and he looked at at me and he said, Mommy, I hate my life. And you know, he didn't just say, I hate homeschool. He said he hated his life. I want you to just really take that in. Wow. That if you're marshalling the majority of their day, no matter how many video games they play after that, they can still feel like they hate their whole lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was such a moment for me. And I was enough of a connected mom to know that that was an important statement to not ignore. So I started consulting with some of the other homeschoolers and this one educational specialist I knew at the time, and she sent me brain research that showed that you should not focus on an hour a day per subject, that the brain likes deep dives, and Noah had the deep dive kind of personality. So I got rid of the schedule. I gave him a couple of weeks just to whittle wood. I don't know what it is about whittling wood, but all mothers think that is just brilliant activity over video games, but really it's nothing. (laughs) It's literally nothing. But he did that for about two weeks. And then we just sort of started over. I just followed him. We went to the library and checked out books he wanted to read. We did poetry tea times. We rode bikes. We took hikes and, you know, plucked blackberries. And I just... I just dumped the schedule. And what was so fascinating is our best learning journey began. Um, He got really interested in the gold rush in California where we were living at the time. So we put together an entire party built from the gold rush and invited all of his friends. And it took us about six weeks to put it together, but it was the beginning of a whole new way of educating. So that's a great story. And I really love it. And why do, why do you think it's hardwired in our bodies that if we're not suffering, we're not learning? I mean, I don't know where that comes from, but it's like, God, you're crying. Let's, you know, and and maybe it was you that said it, that once there's tears, the lesson's done, right? Yes. Yes. Is that you that said that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I I say, uh, yeah. When the tears come, the lesson is done. That's right. And here's the thing. I love what my friend Rita Savasco from rootedinlanguage.com says. She's a specialist who works with learning disabilities Mm -hmm. and was a homeschooler. She's amazing. Mm -hmm. So here's what she says. Nobody learned to swim by drowning. Right. Right? So what we want to do is create a sense of safety, uh, an opportunity for risk without judgment, without drowning, without the sense of failure. I think the reason we look for suffering to prove education is happening is most of us were trained in traditional school environments 
-hmm. And that literally is how they treat school. You know, you're, you're living for this grade. And if you get an A, it means the test was too easy and the teacher should make it harder. There is not a lot of valuing of mastery or pleasure in learning or ease. And yet um, the analogy I use in my book is a lot of times our kids are learning, 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 like they learn how to ride a bike. You know, they learn their times tables and we immediately shift to fractions because, oh, well, they know their times tables. It would be like your child learning to ride that bike. And the second they're flying down the road and enjoying it, you take it away and hand them a unicycle. Yeah. You know, there is a certain pleasure that these skills are supposed to achieve in our lives. We're supposed to enjoy using them. Mm. And that's part of what builds mastery. So when we're thinking about learning, it's not, I like to separate pleasure from fun. It's not just how do we add whipped cream to this subject? It's how does a child revel in the skill that they've just acquired? What does that feel and look like? Right. And if we put that into the context of our own lives, you know, we're homeschooling, but you know, friends and families in their, in their life, if they're, they accomplish something and their boss, you know, comes at them with something bigger and harder, you know, I'm out of this job. I want to quit. I don't want anything to do with it. That's right. Celebrating successes is such a, a, a skill. I think homeschoolers, homeschool parents need to just latch onto. And, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head. These, these people who create these video games are masters at it. Yes. They need to create some, some homeschool or education curriculum because they really have tapped into, oh, I'm good at this. All right. I'm going to get a little bit challenging. Oh, I'm good at this. I'm going to get a little bit. And you know what? I don't know if you've heard of the app Duolingo. Oh yeah, I have. So have you used it before? I have not. So I'm going to give them a plug because, um, my husband's from Romania. Um, we've been married for almost 13 years and I have been around the block trying to learn Romanian. Okay. Hasn't <laughs> come. I've, I've gotten books. I've gotten, you know, listen, but learning Duolingo, this app, it's almost like a game and it's just the level of challenge where I can't wait to do it every night, the 15 wow. minutes every night. And, you know, we're going to Romania in, um, in, in about three months here. And I think I can, I think I can have a conversation with his family that doesn't speak English. Right. So, um, it, it really has tapped into that. And it's, I think it's our challenge as educators to find that, to find that, okay, are they crying? Okay. They're not crying. That's good. But are they a little bit challenged? Okay. Then we can go with that and tapping into that. Another thing you say in the book, which I think I want to get like my megaphone out and, and shout it for the people in the back row, is that calculation you get with their age plus uh, the minute. Go ahead and talk about that. Yeah. So SCALE is uh, an organization that it talks about literacy education, and they, uh, they suggest, based on their research, that children's attention span is age plus one minute. So an eight-year-old can give you nine good minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, a 14-year-old can give you 15 good minutes before their focused attention sort of escapes them, where they need to redirect away from focus for a break. Mm-hmm. If that is really true, and I think we can probably attest to it from our own experience with our kids, then why are we requiring them to sit at the table for a full hour doing one task, and we're calling that legitimate learning? Because what's going on in that hour is every eight-year-olds, every nine minutes are redirecting away from focus anyway. Yes. And you are now having to do school to your child whenever that occurs. You're like, no, stay focused. Hey, don't get up. Why are you, is your mind wandering? 
If, however, we really valued the nine minutes, we said, okay, let's, we're doing a nine minute sprint. We're going to really focus on these math problems, get them done in nine minutes, even by the timer. And then when that bell rings, they're ready to get up and walk around, go get a glass of water, feel proud of themselves for focusing. We start to build momentum when we honor the natural span of attention that children have. Yeah. And one of the things that we do, and this is a tip I learned from um, a friend that works in the school system, but uh, working on executive functioning and learning mm. how to manage our time right, right? So what I do, and this really works for my youngest because he's, he just turned eight, but those nine minutes are like, there. it's a long nine minutes. But so we have an analog clock and um, I know you can get those clocks where it's, you know, you set maybe 10 minutes and it goes from red to black. But my friend was saying to really get that sense of time to take um, like um, a dry erase marker and just shade in the nine minutes so they can can nice that. And then they they know what nine minutes feels like. And then it's not that long. We can do this. And then let's just go, you know, and then we can go on from there. So that's something that- I love that idea. That's fantastic. Yeah. And uh, it's really worked well. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great thing. So I think we're going to wrap this up here. But Julie, I just want to say thank you so much. Your book is fabulous. Everyone needs to go out and, and get a copy. It'll change your thank life. You. If you're feeling like um, you can't do homeschooling another day or another year, I guarantee this will change. If you're thinking about homeschooling and you're thinking you can't do it, Julie is going to prove you wrong. She's going to prove <laughs> what she has to say. So where else can we find some of your stuff? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, wonderful. Yeah. So the bravelearner.com mm-hmm. has links to where you can buy the book online. It also has a 92 page free downloadable companion guide. Mm-hmm. So if you want to have sort of a bullet journaly experience with my book and actually put some of the practices uh, into place in your life, Download that free guide. There's no strings attached. Literally, I just wanted you to have somewhere to work on these projects because every chapter has an activity. They're all leading you somewhere. So please feel free to do that. So thebravelearner.com. The second place that you can find me, of course, is on bravewriter.com. That's where all of our writing curriculum and online writing classes is classes live. We would love to have you take a class with us or use one of our products and see writing really come to life in your family. And then if you want more of me personally, join Instagram and follow me at Julie Brave Writer. That is the place I am personally the most active and I love engaging with the community there. All right. Well, thank you so much. I know that you've really helped me out and I'm sure people listening will get helped out as well. Thanks so much, Julie. Thank you, Rachel.